this morning, if you uh, were here with us last week and, and you happened to glance down last week, you likely saw the passage that we're going to be dealing with. We're going to be in Titus 1, 5 through 9, and it is the subject of, of elders, and Paul gets into this. Now, for us here, earlier, what you saw was the deacons across the front and, and up the sides, and they weren't here to protect me. They weren't here to keep you from rushing the stage. They were here to offer prayer. They were offering a, a service. They were functioning as servants. That's what the word deacon means. Deacons are servants. You go to Acts 6. This is clearly what we see. Uh, you see that the disciples are out. They're administering the word. They said, look, we need to find somebody else to go and to serve the widows. We don't need to give ourselves to these things. We need to find people so that we can give our efforts and our energies the administration of the word, okay? In the church, we see two offices, two offices. I don't know what background you came from, but we see two offices in the New Testament. We see deacons and we see elders. Now, there are a variety of terms that are used synonymously. Elder, overseer, you see it variously translated as bishop, presbyter, synonymous, elder, okay? Everybody's clear. So we have two. Which ones are they? They are deacons and they are Okay, well, I heard somebody in the back say, Pope, you're, okay. Okay, I can see how, we'll talk about that later. We really will talk about that later. Um, It's going to be lunch, you're going to buy. Okay, so we see this breakdown, we see deacons and elders. As I was thinking about this passage, really, it, it deals with not so much power, but it deals with the idea of responsibility and authority, okay? It's not power. It's not Paul writing and saying, look, I want you to set people up, and I want, to get, I want you to give them total power and authority. So when they say jump, everybody else yells, how high? When they say money, everybody says, how much? No, what he describes for us in this passage is a snapshot of what their heart looks like. That's what we see. You get to Hebrews 13 and verse 17, what you see is he writes and he says, you need to submit to these people, not because they're good, great, and wonderful, but because they are ones who will have to give an account of God for how they manage the souls of the church. Okay, do you understand that? It's not about power and authority. It's about responsibility. It's about at some point those who are recognized as elders will have to give an account of how they manage the souls in the church. And because of that, Paul spends a great deal of time in 1 Timothy 3 and in here in Titus describing what their hearts look like. Now, the idea of, of leadership and direction is something in my life that I've started thinking of what are two examples or what are a couple of examples of how direction or leadership almost led me off course in my life. I know when Valerie and I were, we were in California and we're, and we're driving up the coast and so we're driving north up the coast, and so I've got cliff to my left, okay? Here's me on the highway. This is cliff to my left. What happens if I turn left? Cliff. Yeah, I'm going to die. And so, and, and so we're driving up the coast, and all of a sudden we've got this GPS unit, and it starts saying, turn left. And I look down, I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> so we drive along a little further, and it says, turn left. I'm like, man, that is... I mean, we want to get to the beach, but not that way. And so I'm not sure that's a good idea. And again, it says, turn left. And I'm thinking, you just don't know what you're talking about. You're giving me bad direction. You're giving me bad input. 
That's example one, bad input, bad direction. Second time, Valerie and I are in Prague, and this friend of ours decides that it would be a good idea, since we're just learning to drive in the city, if he lends us his GPS. Second time, the stupid thing has failed me, right? So we're driving around in the city. Now, Prague is not made for a car. It's made for a cart. It's made for a horse. It's made for people on feet. It is not made for a car. There are a number of one-way streets. The city doesn't make sense as you drive through it. And so we're driving down through the city, and all of a sudden, we're on this one-way street, and the buildings are just on either side of us, and all of a sudden, no signal. But for some reason, the little thing just keeps moving on the map. And I'm like, oh, come back, come back, come back, come find me. I have no idea where we're going. I pull off to the side. I send Valerie out of the car with a paper map, and she's walking up to intersections trying to figure out where exactly we are. Now, it tried to drive me through buildings. It tried to send me down one-way streets the wrong way, and I knew enough check to understand what those hand signals meant. It was giving me bad directions, giving me bad input, right? Some of you might have been a part of churches where there were a number of elders and you received bad input. And so you look at it and you say, having more people, having a plurality of elders is going to lead to bad input. It's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. If the heart of the person, if the heart of the person looks like these characteristics that we read in in Titus 1, 5 through 9, We're all safe. We're all taken care of. Paul doesn't give us here an apology. He doesn't give us here an argument where he is arguing for a plurality of elders, right? That's not what this passage is here to do. He assumes it. He doesn't come in and say, this is why you need to have it. This is how you do this. He assumes it. And we're going to see that as we walk through this passage. All right? Let's try and see what the heart Paul desires for elders to have. Paul writes and starts in verse 5. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Plural elders, every town singular. As I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He's talking about the home life. He says, for an elder seer, as God's steward, must be above approach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's walk through this together. We see from opening up this, that Paul, at some point, was with Titus in Crete, and he has left him in Crete for an, ex, for an express purpose. And what do we read that that is? It is to put things into order. Apparently, when Paul was in Crete with Titus, there were things that just didn't get finished. Now, for anybody that has started a project, projects tend to turn into other projects, do they not? I mean, you get out and, and you're going to do a little bit of home repair in the house, and then you end up doing a little bit of home repair on your home repair, and a little bit of home repair on that home repair, and then you end up calling somebody to fix all the home repairs that you started, and all you really needed to do was take out the trash to begin with. 
there are some things that have yet to be taken care of in, in Crete, in these cities. What we're going to recognize as we work our way through Titus is that there are some people there that are teaching things that are just wholly wrong, wholly incorrect, and that really has a lot to do with why Paul appoints elders. He wants to make sure that there are people there that know the sum and substance of Scripture, they're applying it to the lives of people there, and they're making sure the church stays orthodox, that the church stays true, okay? You hear that? You see that? So Paul writes, he says, look, I need you to put in order, I need you to take care of these things that remain unfinished. Now, the thing that he expressly talks to about, us about in this passage is the appointing of elders in every town. The appointing of elders in every town. Flip over with me to Acts, Acts 14. Paul had a really simple format that he followed. You find this when he goes to different places that he does some of the same things in all of these towns, all these places that he goes to. And we see a little bit of a snapshot of this in Acts 14. Acts 14, let's pick it up in verse 21. If you're still turning to the left, you've probably passed it. Paul writes, he says, when they had, or Luke writes, describing Paul, he says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples... Paul goes into the city, preaches the gospel, people get saved, he teaches them, he builds them up. He says they return to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. They go back to these places. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. They're discipling, they're engaging, they're edifying the body. Encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul writes, he says, look, it's not easy. You're going to suffer. Things are not always going to go your way. He's not selling them false goods. He tells them the gospel is difficult, it makes demands of your life, and some of you are going to suffer. Some of you are going to be persecuted. Verse 23, he says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We find Paul goes in to a group group of people that have given their lives to Jesus. They believed in Jesus. Paul builds up these people. He's discipling them. He's pouring his life into them. And from this group of mature believers in Jesus Christ, he calls out elders. From this mature group of Christians, he goes in and he finds people and he knows what he wants their heart to look like. And so he meets them and he goes over and he says, let me, let me learn what your home life is like. And so he meets the man. He says, oh, no, let, me, let me talk to your wife. Let me find out what she says about you. And he says, whoa, there's some disparity here. Let's, let's, let's go back. Let's talk about this again. He says, oh, okay, okay. Okay, he just had a bad day yesterday. And for some of them, he says, no, no, okay. This guy's not qualified. Let's go to the next one. So he's finding out his home life. He talks to people in the community. He says, well, tell me a little bit about what this person's like. And they say, oh, you know, Joe, he's a great guy. He says, well, no, I don't. That's, that's, that's why I'm here. So he begins to describe, he begins to talk to, they begin to talk to Paul about what these people are like. And he calls out elders from each of these churches and appoints them. Elders, plural, in each church, singular. Let's look at what their heart looks like. Flip back to Titus. Paul splits this really in two phases. Got the home life, got the community life. Now they mirror one another really well, but he he handles it in two phases. We've got the home life, we've got the community life, and then we've got them discharging their duties, okay? 
We've got them doing the ministry, doing the job that they were called for. Let's look at their home life. Paul uses this cap phrase that covers everything. He's going to use it for home life. He's going to use it for community life. And it is, if anyone is above reproach. If anyone is above reproach. Now, he sets this up, and he's, he's using an if, and so you're going to be thinking, well, where is the then? If, if this is the if, where is the then? The then is, if you find somebody like this, appoint them, okay? If you find somebody like this, appoint them. So he goes in, he says, if anyone is above reproach. And so they begin thinking in their minds. They begin thinking in their minds of people that fit the category of being above reproach. Some of you this morning are pulling through your own minds and thinking, do I know somebody that's above reproach? And the problem is, for some of you, you're translating that as, do I know somebody that hadn't sinned, namely against me, but really against other people too? It's like, no, it's not my wife. It's, it's not, well, it could be me. Hmm. I didn't see anybody this morning. I think he's talking about me. Well, probably not. We're going to talk about arrogance in a little bit. <clears throat> so he goes in and he says, look, if anybody is above reproach, Paul's understanding and his thought and expectation is that these people will be found. He didn't think that Titus would be out there in the community searching under every rock, searching under every, in every home and coming up dry and saying, I'm sorry, Paul, there's just nobody there. He assumes that if there's correct teaching in the church, that it's producing this type of person. It should be producing this type of person. Man, if you just look back a little bit in Titus, we talked about people getting saved. And he said that, that, that he is out there, he is preaching for the sake of God's elect, verse 1, and their knowledge of the truth that does what? It accords with godliness. If you have a correct knowledge of who Jesus is and you're applying that to your life, it produces godliness. And that godliness is what Paul's talking about when he says this person should be above reproach. They're not sinless, but this is the type of person that when you hear their name mentioned, you say, yeah. I could see that. I could see that. He strikes me as somebody that, that, that loves Jesus, that follows him, that this knowledge of Jesus is producing godliness in his life. I could see that. I believe that. I could see that about that person. Now, if it's the type of person you hear their name called and the, and the thought occurs in your mind, and this is where a lot of people go wrong, and they say, he is a great leader. People in the community look up to him. He's a great leader. He's a successful businessman. His, his marriage looks very good. But they never get into the sum and substance of his faith. If the description of this person is really just the things that they do in the community and, and how great and how successful they have been, you're headed in the wrong direction. It's not looking for successful businessmen. He's looking for people that have a successful faith, they are sold out to Jesus. And that's why he describes when he says, if anyone is above reproach. Now let's look at his home life. Turning to the relationship with the, the person's spouse, and this is not necessarily an indication that they have to be married, but if they are married, he says, they should be the husband of one wife. Now we, we covered this extensively when we went to 1 Timothy 3. If you are really interested in this, you can go back and listen to that. It's online, you can access those archives, and it is there for you. Let me succinctly say this. He's not talking about polygamy. It's just not, it's just not the case, okay? 
He's not talking about remarriage after divorce. That's, that's also not the case. What he is talking about is intensity of devotion. You say, what if somebody's divorced? And I say, well, is that person intensely devoted to their spouse? He's talking about intensity of devotion. This is what that looks like, and this is why that is so much more radical and so much more important. He's writing it in the present tense. Say this person has to be the husband of one wife. You're going to call somebody as an elder. You go into their home. You meet with them. You meet with their spouse. You're going to find out really quickly if this person is fully dedicated to their spouse. You can talk to people that know them as a couple that have seen them interact. You can say, is he sold out to her? Is he, as in Genesis 2.24, one flesh with her? Husband leaves his parents. He joins together with his wife. And Genesis 2.24 says they become one flesh. They are joined together. There's no room for division there. This doesn't mean that Valerie and I get together. We come up with a company line. I say, and I start running through questions. I'm like, now somebody asked you what we did last night. What's your response? She's like, watch TV, ate popcorn. I'm like, no. That was last night, not the night before. And this is the night in question. She's like, oh, okay, let's rehearse it again. But it's this idea that when they come together, they are mutually exclusive. There's no more room in his heart for someone else. He's not a shameless flirt. He's not you know, flirting with all the other women that he comes into contact with. And for our day and time, I see a lot of pastors disqualifying themselves over the issue of pornography. If whatever way it enters into their heart, what we see over and over again is men losing their ministry because of an addiction to pornography. Lose their marriage, they lose their ministry, they're disqualifying themselves for being eligible to serve as an elder because of this addiction, because they're not sold out to their spouse. Now thinking about this, Thinking through what it looks like to be the husband of one wife, it requires intensity of devotion. Now, you call somebody to be an elder, they're appointed as an elder, there are so many hours they can give to devoting themselves to the church. Every evening I go home from the office. There are emails I didn't send, people I didn't call, visits I didn't make, books I didn't read, study I didn't do, time and prayer I didn't spend. Friends, I could stay up 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and still have work left over to do. Now, some of you, your jobs are exactly the same way. It doesn't matter how much time you pour into it, there's always something else to do. Just as crazy as it, as it is to think that one person could do all of these things, it so too is impossible to think that even a group of people could do all of the ministry of the church Think of the number of problems you have in your life right now. Now look around this room. Everybody else has problems too. Everybody else has problems too. You cannot satisfy everyone. To try and do so, you invalidate your ministry at home. You get divorced. Or you live, worse yet, a functional divorce where you put on all the pretense of a happy, healthy relationship. I brag on her, she brags on me. We go home, I sleep in one room, she sleeps in another. If we sleep in the same bed, it's on the edge of the mattress. We are functionally divorced, not willing to do it. 
anybody you call to serve as an elder, they better not be willing to do it either. Recognize the church is the bride of Christ. She is my bride, not you. The church is the bride of Christ. Any elder that a church would call better not be married to the church or else he'll end up having an affair with the church to the neglect of his spouse. Make sense? Goes on, he says, look, as often as the case, sometimes a husband and wife get together and children come along. He says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. You look at this, you say, man, that's, that's pretty harsh. Why would he put such a requirement down on somebody who's an elder? Simply as this. Paul spells it out a little bit more explicitly for us in 1 Timothy 3. But it's this. If you can't shepherd in the home, you've got no business shepherding in the church. If I can't point my kids and lead them towards Jesus, and they see me and see the way that I live, I've got no business trying to do it in the church. Okay? Now, for any of you who have been around two-year-olds, kids that throw temper tantrums, you might be tempted to think, whoo-hoo, disqualified. <laughs> I got to be honest, there are days I feel disqualified. Two-year-olds, I just don't know that Jesus is in there. <laughs> it's just scary. You know, we get the stern face and look at him. He looks back at me like, bring it, Bubba. <laughs> Valerie, he needs to talk to you. Kids are going to be kids. They're going to disobey. The idea is that inasmuch as they are under the authority of the parents, that they are being directed toward salvation, that salvation is being put before them, and they're being called and directed. Paul, writing to 1 Timothy, said it this way, that they should recognize that they are under authority, that he should exercise authority in the home, Okay? They should be in submission to him. Can't shepherd in the home, you can't shepherd in the church. Now look at this. He moves outside the church and he does so in two movements. One, he moves and describes those things that should not be a part of an elder's life. And the second, he moves and he says these things absolutely have to be there. Let's look at the ones he says shouldn't be. He goes and he says, verse 7, for an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. He's using a synonym here. He started with the idea of an elder. He moves into an overseer. He moves from a title to description of function. This person is overseeing the matters of the church. He's overseeing the individual souls. And he says he is serving as a steward for God. Now, the idea of a steward isn't one that really conjures this idea of unbelievable power, is it? When you think of a steward, you think of somebody who is managing, one who is himself under authority, right? It's one who is himself under authority. He is under God's authority, and he is managing the details that God has placed him in charge of. He's managing the details that God has placed him in charge of. He is answerable to God. And he goes again, and he said, look, this person in their home life above reproach. This person in their community life in the church above reproach. So if there are things that you think of about this person that, that, that draw questions to your mind, that are problems you have with their character, things they've done, these are reasons to reconsider a candidate serving as an elder. Now look how he starts this list. 
And it's interesting to note that as you look at this list, a lot of these are characteristics that when we see failures in ministry and we see pastors fail, you can point oftentimes to one of these five things. So he starts it off with the first one. He says he must not be arrogant. To be arrogant is obviously, is, I mean, is to think better of yourself than you should. And so it drives in this idea that if somebody is going to serve as an elder, they must have a firm grasp on humility. And this is probably why they've encouraged them to have children. And so this idea in there, they say, look, this person must not be arrogant. They must not think that they are the sole person on whom all of these things hangs. If you are arrogant, if you think that everything rises and sets on your personality and your agenda, you're going to wreck that poor church. You're going to destroy the lives of the people you come in contact with. And if somebody comes up to you and says, friend, I thank you that you're wrong, humbly, I come to you and I, and I tell you I think you're wrong, you're not going to hear that. You're going to respond with hatred and you're not going to accept critique. There's no place for arrogance in the life of somebody who would be an elder. He says he must not be quick-tempered shouldn't be the type of person that if he gets critiqued, if somebody comes up and offers a critique or, or says, you know, I really think we could do it better this way, that their response is, I tell you what, you better sit down and shut up before I just, I pour out all over you. <clears throat> and if they act that way, they better be a big person. He says, look, they must not be quick-tempered. What he's driving at over and over again with these things is they really shouldn't have these characteristics that aren't also in Jesus. Their heart needs to beat for Jesus. He says, look, they can't be quick-tempered. They can't respond just so quickly with these things. Not that they don't get upset. Not that they don't see sin in their people's lives and get frustrated trying to call them out of that, saying, repent, release these things. But that they're not quick-tempered. They don't have a short fuse. Next one's pretty obvious. He says they shouldn't be a drunkard. It's not writing and saying that the person should abstain from alcohol. Instead, he makes this point, they should not be enslaved to alcohol. Do you see the distinction, the difference there? On the one hand, it, Paul wrote Timothy and said that he should drink wine because of his frequent stomach ailments. He's not invalidating that, that advice. He's not invalidating that direction that he gave him. Instead, he's saying this person should not be numb. They should not be dulled because of their reliance on alcohol. They shouldn't be an alcoholic. They should not be a drunkard. Shouldn't be one given to so much alcohol that they become intoxicated and are dependent upon that state. He goes on, he says they shouldn't be violent. Now, don't know a whole lot of pastors that are MMA fighters on the weekends. <clears throat> I, just, I just don't know very many, and maybe this just shows you the type of pastors I know. Not a whole lot of violence is done from pastors to people by use of their fists. But an unbelievable amount of violence is done from pastors to their people by the words they use. The job sets it up that way. I get to stand here, somebody else gets to stand here, and we get to tell you things. We get to teach you the word, apply it to your lives. There is the temptation towards doing violence to people 
and it all feeds back to the idea of arrogance. I make you feel worse about yourself, makes me look better, makes you more dependent upon me. There's no place for that. Too many people have walked away, have left the church because of violence being done to them, being done to the people they love, being done to their families. Now, rebuke stings. To be rebuked, to have somebody come into your life, and and we all know Joan doesn't sin, so I'm going to go to Joan. We go to Joan and say, Joan, you are a no good, and we just run this whole list of things. And Joan says, he did violence to me. I'm not putting up with that trash. And so she gets the, uh, the phone tree going, and, and they all come, and they've got picket signs outside the church that say, Matt is a man of violence. And we say, on, on what basis? And she says, well, he told me I did all these things. Everybody's like, well, you do those things. So maybe he's just a truth teller. There's a difference between rebuke and violence, okay? Now, to the person that's being rebuked, it's going to feel like violence. To the person being rebuked, it's going to be painful. But we recognize rebuke is not punitive, but it's restorative. We rebuke people, we call out sin in people's lives, not because we want to make them feel worse about who they are, but because we want to drive them back to Jesus. We want to lovingly drive them back and draw them back to Jesus, okay? goes on, he says, this person should not be greedy for gain. Paul extensively discusses this in 1 Timothy 6. He said there were people there in the church that thought that godliness was a means of, of gain, of getting money. They, they were hucksters for the gospel. They were out telling people, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to give me money. The church is not the place to get rich. It's just not the place. It's not the place to get rich. It's not the place to hide out. It is not to be used for greedy gain. Paul's got a lot to say about that. And let's flip over. Let's look at some positive attributes. Paul says, on the one hand, none of these things should describe this person. On the other hand, this person should be, he writes in verse 8, he says, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We should all want men like this to lead this church. We should all want men like this to lead any church we are ever a part of. It says they need to be hospitable. This isn't the idea of good old southern hospitality, just having people in your home, but he's painting at the idea of being kind, of being warm, of being accepting to foreigners, to those who are marginalized, to those who everybody else in society looks at and sees no value, no worth. It's easy to be hospitable to people you like. It's easy to fill your home with people that, 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 you know, they bring a casserole or people that you just enjoy spending time with. But when he gets to the idea of hospitality, he's describing being hospitable to those who can't return the favor. To those who can't return the favor. This is self-explanatory. He says a person should be a lover of good. They should love those things that are good. They should drive other people towards them. He says they should be self-controlled. Now, this is in direct contradiction to the person who's a drunkard. A person who's a drunkard is under the control of alcohol. The person who is self-controlled is directing their own course. This also points to the person should not be unduly influenced by others. They are self-controlled under the direction of Jesus. They're not controlled by a theater of puppets. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody understands that? 
You guys are nodding a lot today. This is really helpful. It says they should be upright. Other people in community see them, and they say this person is upright. He is just. He's not one who, who violates laws, who violates other people. If God looks at the person, there's this declaration that the person is holy. They are built up in the knowledge of God, and it is going out in this manifestation of holiness. And lastly, the person should be disciplined. They should be disciplined. Why does he make this comment? You see, because for many who will be elders who will serve in that capacity, there are very few people looking over their shoulders. Got to be a self-starter. If you feel like you're called into ministry, if you're one who would like to aspire to be an elder, as Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3, it is on you to be self-controlled and disciplined. It is difficult to make yourself get in and to study, to do the things that you are called to do when you know that to shortchange the system or to take a shortcut would oftentimes result in the same end. For one who would aspire to be an elder, recognize that every decision, every minute wasted, every decision made, they'll have to give an answer to. This person has to be disciplined. And now look at the so what of it, verse 9. Paul has described the home life. He's described the, the, the exterior life. In verse 9, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Paul gets into this idea that the person has to believe the right things. And for Titus, he's pointing and he's saying, look, the people need to remember what you and I taught them. Paul's teaching was the sum and substance of the gospel. So they go in and they tell people, look, you need to adhere to the word that you received. Not some strange teaching, not your take on it, not some way that you've headed in a different direction, but you need to adhere to the word received. And that word received is the gospel. These people need to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Because it's going to become the center point, the cornerstone of everything they do. Why is it so important? Look at this last clause. It's so they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is what you do. You hold up his word. You let it take root in your life. You study it. You know it. It produces godliness, verse 1, in your life. Somebody that's an elder, they take this word, and they teach this word. And this is how this works. Pretty simple. If I ever teach a preaching course, it's going to be short. Probably not going to get paid a lot. Probably not going to be called back because it's going to be short. It'll be, tell them what it means. Tell them how to do it. And they say, well, what else? I'm like, well, you've got like an hour and 15 minutes to kill. So figure that out. But really, that's, that's the basis of what it is. It's, it's telling them what it means and telling them what it looks like, how to apply it to their lives. It's not in, in engineering some new way of doing things. It's not coming up with all these flowery things. But quite simply, it is applying the truth of this to every facet of life. It's applying the truth of this to every facet of life. It's giving instruction in sound doctrine so that those people, too, might have godliness produced in their lives. 
And then it's going to each and every group that contradicts it. Not in such a way as to shout at them and enter into some type of argument, but to show them how their teaching is in contradiction to this teaching. To show them how their opinion and their understanding of the word is in direct contradiction to the word of God. Not to make them feel bad. Not to browbeat them. Remember, this is a person who's not called to arrogance or violence, but to bring them back along. That's not always done in public view. In fact, most of the time it's done best in private. You don't want to embarrass the people. You want to bring them back along. So you read this and you ask a question. So why in the world would Paul include this? Why would God inspire Paul to write these things? Because he cares for the church. He cares for the church. Read over and over and over and again in Scripture that Jesus died for the church. He gave himself up for the church. For the church to be healthy requires that those that lead the church look like this requires they look like this that's how much God loves you that he has concerned himself with even how leaders are chosen in the church with what they look like with what their heart looks like now the more difficult question and for those of you who haven't been at Ridgecrest very long Maybe you just, your exposure to Ridgecrest this morning is looking at the bulletin and reading the names on the front. And we all have pretty easy names to read, and so that's not a difficult chore for you. But you read through that, and, and you notice that basically the way that we are structured here at Ridgecrest is a single elder model. We don't have more than one elder. This is something that we've been working through for a while. Remember when we were in James together and we said, if anyone is sick, let them call the elders and let that person come and pray with them? Then we're in 1 Timothy 3 and, and, and that same back to that idea and Paul talked about elders and, and what they should do and how they should operate and how they should work. We've been working through this for quite some time. We've been praying through this. God, how would you have us Respond. What would you have us, us look like? How would you have us move? What would you have us do? And for some of you, you're thinking, oh man, I knew I should have stayed at home today. I would have a whole lot rather heard about this from somebody else. Hey, hear me on this. Change in a church happens best when it's slow. Okay? Change in a church happens best when it's slow. You're going to turn a big ship. You don't turn it on a dime because you're going to throw everybody overboard. You're going to cause the, the ship to, to, to fracture. It's going to break up. This is my conviction, that we need to make a move to a plurality of elders. So you might ask yourself the question, you say, well, this isn't very Baptist. And for my Presbyterian friends, they're saying, oh, yeah, that's right. actually is very Baptist. 
W.B. Johnson, he's the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the originators that helped put together the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote this treaty on the governance of the church. And he argued strongly for plurality of elders in Baptist life. And he argued it on biblical grounds, and he argued it on practical grounds. But here's the thing. Whether we have two or ten, whether we have two or ten, how they're chosen and how we move through these things are decisions that we will walk through together, okay? We're not going to violate the way that we're currently set up just to bring this about. I think that'd be sinning, okay? It's going to be slow. It's going to be measured. I'm telling you, this is where we're going. This is where, as long as God keeps me here, this is where I'm going to lead us. But I think if we get there, and everybody's just angry, and everybody's just upset, and we've, we've lost half the church, it doesn't really glorify God, does it? So when you change a thing, when you move a thing, when you make changes like this, it's got to be done slowly. They've got to be done in such a way as to give God the most glory and the most honor. It's got to be done so carefully. This is uncharted territory for us. Recognize scripture gives us a really clear indication of what the person looks like, of what their heartbeat is like. Unfortunately, it doesn't give us a whole lot of indication as to how to pull from the body, whether or not the church nominates them, what type of process we walk through to get there. I mean, it's going to be a slow measured, incremental process bathed in prayer and trusting the leading, the guiding of God to get there. This is going to be something we walk through as a body, not something that's rained down from on high. But think about this. Think about this. If you're a man in this room, and Scripture has restricted this to men, if you're a man in this room, do you not want these attributes to be true of you? Do you not want those things that Paul says shouldn't be in your life to not be in your life? And do you not want those things he said should be true of an elder to be true about you? Do you not want that? Now, everybody, I want you to think. If we are led by a group of men, that this is what their heart is like. This is what their lives are like. This is how they're seen by their families. This is how they're seen by their community. Do you not think we're all going to be okay? In our desire to be faithful to the word of God, God will honor that. He'll honor our efforts as long as we continue to follow him Nobody's got any pride invested in this. Nobody's got any type of agenda other than we want to be faithful to the word of God in the way that he is leading. Amen.